All right, welcome everybody to a very special episode today. We have uh, in the house Jonathan Schwartz. Thank hey. you so much for joining us, man. Thank you for having me. Amazing. Yeah, glad to have you here in Culver City, the mobile podcast. <laughs> um, thank you for making the time, man. It's, it's wonderful to make the time to people who want to send the right message out to the world. So thank you for giving me the opportunity through your platform. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, so I always like to start things off um, just with a little bit of history. So tell us, you know, where you're from, where you grew up. Sure. You know. I grew up in the Catskill Mountains, upstate New York. Okay. Uh, I call it the Borscht Belt. Okay. Uh, <laughs> born and raised in Monticello, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful place. Uh, I was born in 1969. Mm. So it was a great place in the, in the 70s and 80s to be raised. Um, it's Woodstock, right? Woodstock. Absolutely, it's Woodstock. A sign. <laughs> it's definitely a sign. As I'm sitting here talking to you from a place I went to uh, rehab, yes, it's definitely a sign. Um, but it was a beautiful place to grow up, all kidding aside. Um, loved it, loved New York, loved what it had to offer me at that time. Um, I don't remember my childhood um, at all, unfortunately, but um, the things I do remember about the Catskill Mountains, the green, the greenery, the, the close-knit, small group of people that you allow in your life. Um, are some of this, this, you know, the people that stuck by me through these difficult challenges I'm facing now. And uh, I'm truly appreciative to those that um, helped me grow as a person, mm. at a, as a young young boy, mm. and that, you know, literally are not judging me today as, as a 47-year-old man. Uh, but no, it was a great place to be raised. Uh, from there, um, I did a lot of moving around because I was raised by a single mother mm-hmm. since age four. Uh, my father abandoned us uh, for a life of drug dealing, drugs, and gambling. Um, didn't really have a relationship with him. Um, went on to college in Long Island for a freshman year, CW Post. Transferred there to SUNY Albany. And from there, uh, finished at San Francisco State because at the time my mother was living in San Francisco. And I needed to get away from sort of the fraternity scene. I was going to ask, you know, usually when we got somebody like in our family, like a parent that's run a while, that rubs off on us, right? Absolutely. So were you kind of, I'm imagining you with like kind of the wrong crowd, right? Actually, the irony is I I really was with the right crowd. But what's consistent about throughout my whole life is that I lived a double life, Mm. meaning the wrong crowd... Um, was not something that I, I, I surrounded myself with. I always surrounded myself with really good quality people. Um, but I was physically and emotionally abused by my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and very few of my friends that I surrounded myself with saw that. Although, as I, at least I didn't think they saw it. And I had to pretend I was a strong young boy. Um, as, I, as I've come to learn, my best friend still from childhood shared with me that they all knew that I was physically and emotionally abused and how I turned out the way I did before all of this came about was a total shock to them given the environment and the lack of um, nurturing that I received. Um, I didn't have a strong relationship with my mom either. Um, and it was a really tough upbringing. I, I used it, I thought, to my advantage, meaning when I had children at a young age, 24, I had my first son. I have three beautiful boys 24, 20, uh, 23, 21, and 13. That's awesome. And, you know, I never laid a hand on them. I tried to give them love the best I knew how to give love, but clearly I didn't know how to give love the right way nor how to receive love the right way. You had no model. I had no model. And, um, but, you know, at the time, and even, even throughout my early adulthood into where I am today, for the most part, I surrounded myself with the right people. 
and that's sort of the irony you know it's like this double life that I live from birth for different reasons and different stages of my life I hit it so tell us like how did that show up the double life right like um you know is there a specific example you could give like in high school or something like that where you were you know living this double life well I think in high school I don't again I don't I really when I say I don't remember my childhood I literally do not remember from birth to probably college wow um, the things I do remember are the bits and pieces of the good that happened to me okay um, because I suppressed all the childhood demons yeah um through sobriety which I know we'll talk about later in this podcast um I've gotten greater mental clarity and some of those feelings that I've suppressed have come out and that's how come I know what love is today because I was able to through this through the 12 step program and through the other challenges I've been faced with to understand that um, I don't have to be Superman I don't have to withhold my feelings I don't have to be defensive and angry I don't have to manipulate um, for a certain outcome because um, that's not a way to live you know, a healthy lifestyle. But again, I didn't know that, and that's the sad part as I reflect. But uh, like, like, again... Keeping a, keeping a facade intact is fucking exhausting, isn't it? <laughs> um, no one understands that. You know? yeah. um, it was, the, it was, I, was, I can honestly say I'm 47, I'll be 48 in December when, when this tragedy or from my own actions um, became known to the public in May of 2016. Um, that was the first time I really felt that it, I could breathe freely mm. because this facade I could, couldn't do anymore. I couldn't pretend I was someone I wasn't. You know, on one hand, I was this, from the outsiders looking in, a successful business manager defined by who we represent, right? But But inside I knew I was... Uh, depressed, isolated, insecure, an addict, um, and not happy at all. And every day I couldn't sleep, uh, couldn't look myself in the mirror and be proud of it. And on a surface, again, great clients, you know, great kids, um, great, you know. Great, exactly. Marriage, house, right? Marriage was never great. (laughs) (laughs) The marriage was toxic, um, but my children, as a byproduct of the marriage, makes it today worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm divorced. Officially, I'll be divorced when I surrender on July 11th, but um, the marriage itself was completely toxic. Um, From day one? Yeah, I mean, we were high school sweethearts. We were too young to get married. Yeah. I always found that interesting because you're like, you know, by the, if you're high school sweethearts, you're like four people, different people by the time you're like 30, right? Right. It's true. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, with sobriety, I have to take accountability for my own actions mm-hmm. and being, you know, being the addict that I was, you know, also before sort of my active addictions, being an abused child and really not knowing how to show love. The majority of the toxicity in my relationship was was because of me. Um, and the surface, you know, reality is my ex-wife was a, is a great woman and a great loving mother. She's just not for me and I'm not for her. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that she didn't contribute to the toxicity. She certainly did. She has her own faults. But um, I can't, it's not my responsibility to point those out. I can only look at myself today and say, you know what? my side of the street, I could have done a lot of things differently. I'm not proud of my actions. I'm not proud of the way I treated her. I'm not proud of who I became. 
but at the end of the day, if I can just work on my side of the street, my goal is to become a better human being. And, and I know I will, because I'm, I'm not going to accept mediocrity. You're already doing that. I'm doing opinion, it. You know? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really impressive. Thank you. Um, you know, so, so uh, let's, uh, let's take it to, because again, we try and focus on, you know, we, we delve into people's journeys and we talk about the good, bad, and the ugly, right? Yeah. So what was it like, you know, because you were a, a very successful business manager in the music business, right? Yes. What was... The journey, like getting to that point. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I think part. I mean, it goes back to what I said earlier about like learning from learning from ne- a negative and trying to always turn it into a positive, right? So, by by having feelings of tremendous insecurity and low self esteem as a result of my upbringing, as I said earlier, one is I knew I wanted to be a better parent than my mother or father were to me. Um, not having a lot growing up. I, I had a, a, I knew I wanted a bigger drive and more for myself. I was never really driven by money in terms of that's what brought me happiness because clearly I was making money in my prime, but I was miserable. So my, I think my own inner drive to succeed um, was just because I was so insecure. I wanted to know if I can get there. Mm. Um, I was in so much pain. I wanted to know if that could help me sort of eliminate that pain. Um, and the truth is, I was really good at what I did, but it was because when I was working so hard, um, I wasn't really focused on my depression. I wasn't focused on my insecurities. I wasn't focused on my ego. I wasn't focused on my narcissism. I wasn't focused on all the character defects that sobriety has helped me to understand that I have had most of my life and that I'm working super hard to eliminate from my life and to allow God to be a big part of my life today. and to follow his will because Jonathan's will doesn't work. It hasn't worked in 47 years mm. and um, I'm turning myself over to God now. And I don't mean to sound like this super religious person because I'm not. It's Although more spiritual it's than more spiritual. Religious. Thank yeah, you for yeah, saying yeah. that. Yeah, it's totally spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was successful because I immersed myself in my job and I, immer- and I believed in myself mm-hmm. that I was really good at accounting and really good at business management and I didn't let entertainment or Hollywood or celebrities um, get the best of me. I didn't fall into that trap of the phony Hollywood scene because it's so prevalent. Seductive, isn't it? It can be seductive, but I never got caught up in it. At least I, at least, I shouldn't say never because that's an absolute. Of course I got caught up to, to, to that, you know, I was seduced <laughs> to, at some level. Or, um, but the truth is um, I was able to go into a client pitch meeting, no matter who the client was, an A-list artist, an A-list actor, an A-list athlete, and just be myself because I treated everybody equally. So I don't care how much money you made. I don't care who you were. You're not going to get like you know uh, this idolization from me to you. That's not who I am. We're all the same. That I always understood, and I think that combined with my New York upbringing and my work ethic and luck helped me get to where I got today, or excuse me, where I got to at the, at the, at, you know, the height of my career. Yeah. Um, and then it all came crashing down in 2016. Okay, but we're going to get there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, so, so again, um, thank you for, you know, I feel like definitely um, outlined all the macro stuff for sure, but like talk to us about, you know, um, when you were like, oh man, like, all right, I'm gonna be a music business manager. Like, mm-hmm. when did that moment hit? It's a great you, question. Yeah. So, in uh, my s- junior year of high school mm-hmm. in upstate New York, Fallsburg High School, 
I had a great accounting teacher and he approached me and he said, you're really good at accounting. I think you should be an accountant. That's your destiny. At that time, I had about seven CPAs in my family, hmm. my extended family, meaning cousins and others. One of those cousins was a music business manager, hmm. one of the brightest at the time music business managers in our industry. Um, so when I would see him at summer barbecues or other times in my life, I always knew, A, that I wanted to be an accountant, but not your traditional CPA just doing tax returns. I wanted to be like my cousin, you know, in the business management world. I just liked what he had, was doing and the clients he was representing. It's funny because when you like, when people talk about, some, they'll sometimes reference accounting as like a dry or boring field, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? And I don't think it was that for you at all, really, right? I mean, because working entertainment is... You know, it was, well, first of all, I went, it can be exciting, but I, I started out in public accounting in San Francisco, um, and that was dry and that was boring, but you have to pay your dues. And actually, that was the advice of my cousin. You know, when I graduated college, I thought that I knew everything. I thought that, um, you know, I called up my cousin and said, hey, I graduated college, I'm taking a CPA exam, I'm ready to come work for you. He said, no, you're not. <laughs> he said, you're immature, you're irresponsible. I suggest you stay and work for the sole practitioner in the financial district, hone your analytical skills, and when the time's right, I'll call you. Fast forward four years um, after taking that job and that advice from him, he called me and said, you're ready, and that was in 1995, to come work in the entertainment space, and for me, for him, in business management. And that was like the best, like at the time, that was like the best news, because he was my mentor, and he's saying, I'm ready. So I moved down to Los Angeles from San Francisco at the time with my ex-wife and my older son. And um, I worked for him for about five years. And I did a little bit of gambling there. And that's sort of like when I, real, when I realized that there was potentially an addiction. And he realized it. And um, at the end of... You would be in your like 30s at this point? Or? Yeah, so yeah, in 1995, I was just a high, high 20s. Okay. Know, yeah. I was almost 30. Okay. Um, and he, he, his firm was being acquired at the time by Chase Manhattan Bank, J.P. Wow. Morgan. And he asked me if I wanted to you know, work in that world with him. That was his polite way of saying you probably should just go stick with business management. Yeah. And so I took a small book of business with me in February 2000 and then I joined GSO Business Management as like a senior accountant business manager. Mm -hmm. And um, the lucky break came in 2000 when Lincoln Park... Uh, came in and interviewed me and my former partner Michael mm. um, and we were able to get them as a client. And was that the first major client that you had? The first major client I had, yes. It was kind of all yours? No, was actually it was my partner was, Michael's. He okay. brought me into the meeting to be that young you know, the young opinion, young up-and-coming person. Artists like to see that too. Artists right? like to see that with the gray-haired person in the room <laughs> yeah. and um, we really connected. You know, um, I was always confident. I wasn't confident to the point where I was arrogant. I was just confident in my own, um, my own skill set, yeah. and and I was confident that I could do a really good job. And I think that came across genuinely. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to, um, you know, we be picked, if you will, by Lincoln Park. And I really owe my career advancement to Lincoln Park because eventually they migrated to me and away from Michael after a few years because I was the day to day. And by being the day-to-day -to, -day to this, these, this group was incredible. Six amazing members of a band that after their first album in November of 2000, Hybrid Theory came out, 
you could just, you know, it was unusual that a band can go from playing at the Roxy to all of a sudden a few months later playing in front of, you know, arenas. Of right? arenas. Yeah. I mean, but that's because not only were they all creatively brilliant, they were also very humble and incredibly bright. I find too, like, the, uh, the relationships within the band, right? The dynamics, you know, keeping that healthy is key. So I've seen, you could attest to this, but I've seen that dynamic go toxic when the more money that starts coming in. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this yourself in artists? A hundred percent. Absolutely. The pressures mount, you know, reality sets in, they're all getting older, you know, and toxicity can be, can, you know, you know, internal band conflict can arise. I will, you know, I don't want to say too much about Lincoln Park because it's not fair no, to no, them. No, no, no. Yeah, I was, I was speaking. To yeah, no, but in general, we're talking in general. In sure. general, other big artists. Absolutely. Like the name that see it all the time. Absolutely, that happened. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. And um, you know, the one thing that I, I always advise clients is, that, you know, if you could stay as humble as you are when you first meet me as a new artist, and you get the fortunate break to become an established, successful artist, if you're that humble. Fast forward into the future as you were when we first met. Mm-hmm. That's likely one of the main reasons why you're successful, because many artists they they don't keep that humility and they allow their egos um, to overcome not only who they are as people but their creativity. And, and just in closing on Lincoln Park, you know I have so much respect for their careers and them individually. Um, they are. In my opinion, one of the they are they are the most incredible human beings first and foremost that I was blessed to ever get to know, um, and then to watch from afar the creative geniuses that the six of them are and how great they are as a collective unit. And I think we're seeing that you know today you know forty fifty million albums or so later. Absolutely, and talk about adversity. I mean, did they they got passed up by like every label? They changed their band name like three times, right? Well, resilience, right? Yeah, exactly. They had tremendous resiliency. And that goes back to what we, we talked about earlier with, with respect to me is that confidence, the air of confidence. You need to be confident, not arrogant to succeed yeah. in life. Yeah. You need to believe in yourself and you have to accept rejection. And I think that's an important part of life, not specific to the entertainment space. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're, we're in order to succeed, you have to fail. Many times, usually. You know, if it's one time or multiple times, yeah. as long as you don't take it personally, if you take it personally and you handle it the right way in the mature way and yeah. you still have that drive and resiliency, you're going to be successful. How one defines success, that's an individual thing. And um, um, I've never let success define me by what people think or how they judge me. I feel like success in L.A., and that's why I'm debating like leaving L.A., I just feel like it's in the air. You know, it's the house, it's the car. I can relate to that. Yes, absolutely. It's sad, but it's a sad reality of LA and I hate to stereotype, but you know, listen, I was at the end of the day, I was a glorified accountant, a glorified babysitter. Okay. I was an integral part, a business manager is an integral part of an, of a, of an entertainer's life. Absolutely. But we have to realize we're just a member of a team. We're not the reason why for the most part, the artist or the client's successful. That comes from within. And their team is really important, whether it's the team consisting of the business manager, the personal manager, the agent, the lawyers. You know, I would rec- I would suggest, and I have suggested along my when I was you know practicing, mm-hmm. is to a young artist, established artist looking for you know change, surround yourself with with a great team, because it's half the battle. 
You, know, you can't. This is a very complex environment and society we live in today. And in order to live, and you have to simplify it. And part of that simplicity and simplification is taking the worry away from areas that you're not an expert in. So, as an artist, you're not an expert in business management. So go out and find the best business Absolutely. manager. You're not an expert in in in, in the entertainment law. You know, procuring various deals and how to how to structure those deals. Go out and find the best entertainment lawyer or law firm. And so on and so forth. Because most of us sitting on the professional side of the table, we wish we could be as creative geniuses like you and do what you do, but we can't. And I never professed that I could, nor did I want to. And so just surrounding yourself with a great team is part of the battle. Humility, being humble, great variable and component to have towards success. It makes you want to work harder for somebody too, doesn't it? When yes. somebody's humble versus the opposite. Well, no question. And yeah. you know what? The truth is we can't do this for thank yous. Because right. at the end of the day, we work for them. And it would be nice from an ego or from just a, a feel-good perspective to have thank yous from clients. And I had several clients that often said thank you, and I really did appreciate that. But if I knew that they were working hard and they had good values and integrity, and it's, the irony is that I'm the, one, you know, I'm the one that didn't act accordingly. Yeah. But you know, my observation of others, I wanted to surround myself with artists that had those traits. And um, it, it, it does make you work so much harder, so much harder. I mean, I would work so hard for those type of people because I cared about them. And that's also the irony of this tragedy for me mm. is I really cared about so many of my clients and mm. the addictions became so powerful. I was truly powerless over it. But yeah, you have to love what you do and have a passion for it, be good at it. Otherwise it's, it's fluff and not substance, but you, you still have to respect and appreciate your clients. And I really did. You said that Lincoln Park kind of paved the way, right, for, I guess, what would become a really huge roster mm -hmm. of clients, right? Um, you soon after got into the, the hip-hop space, right? Well, I was in the hip-hop uh, space, excuse me, early on in my career because um, the artists that I had were young artists. And as a young up-and-coming business manager, you're not going to get a lucky break in your first few years mm. because you have a lot to learn. Mm. And so... Who better to learn on than young artists who themselves are in the infancy stage of their respective careers? Mm -hmm. So for me, it was just a niche I, I had representing young hip-hop urban artists. Um, it could have been rock and roll, and I could have said the same thing too. It was just where my niche was. And um, those are the artists that I represented until I got my lucky break with Linkin Park. And then what I did was I worked really hard and did a great job. And when you do that, sort of like in sobriety, when you let your actions speak for themselves, the business will naturally come. It'll be an organic growth of your business. And that's what happened. If you just do a good job and you just focus on what your responsibilities are, success will find, success you. Will find you. And that's, I got lucky and that's what happened. And you know, after Lincoln Park became client A, client B, client C, and before I knew it in 2013, I was probably 2014, I, I you know, I had, Definitely a top five business management practice defined by who your clients are. I always said and will always say, people aren't picking up the phone because Jonathan Schwartz called is calling. They pick up the phone because Jonathan Schwartz represents client A, B, or C. Rihanna or whatever. Whoever yeah, it is. Yeah, whatever A-list client there is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what, I, and that was okay, I accepted that. And that's why, again, the whole thing is I was really good at what I did. Like I never expected anything back. Uh, the, the people who I thought would be there for me through thick and thin were not there for me. 
But it's not because they're bad people. It's because I disappointed them. I'm someone that they looked up to. I got to say something else. Yeah. I also think it might be because they don't understand addiction. 100%. Like, like we do. Well, I think you're you're 100% right. But this is the part of sobriety where I have to say I don't I don't know why it's they they chose to abandon me. It could be that they're disappointed in my actions and and you know, I pretended to be someone that they could look up to and seek good advice and even though I gave that good advice in a very genuine way, yeah, they don't understand addictions and it's a disease. If I if I had cancer, they would be there for me today. But because I had a gambling addiction, a cocaine addiction, a marijuana addiction, that's viewed, unfortunately, so negatively upon in our society. And you would think in the entertainment space it wouldn't be the case. Yeah. But unfortunately, it is. Because you can't see the circuitry in the brain, man. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's we're wired a certain way as addicts. Correct. Nobody sees that. Well, it's know? funny because I don't want to fast forward, but at sentencing, one of my former partners said, well, he could have stopped because he is an addict, the addicts in the room are like, really, you think that we could just stop from our addictions? In fact, it's funny, and I won't mention his client's name, who, who's one of the number one artists in the world today, has recently come out with a mental illness and addiction. Mm. I'm curious to ask him one day, have you ever said to her, how come you didn't stop? Mm. You should have just stopped, right? This is the hypocrisy that goes on and the judgment that people pass on to others without really knowing the struggle that others are going through. And I think that's really sad because I've always had empathy and compassion for others, even when I was an active addict, but even more so today because I've encountered so many addicts today, so many people with mental illness, so many people with life challenges that you can't judge a book by its cover. Do you know their story? Maybe you should get to know them before you pass judgment. You don't have to like them, but you know, gossip is a yeah. real sin of, uh, for, in God's eyes. We shouldn't yeah. be gossiping. We should just be speaking the truth. And if the truth is you don't like someone, that's okay, but do you not like them for the right reasons? Absolutely. And the wrong reasons are to not understand that addiction is a powerful disease, that we as addicts are powerless and it's unmanageable. And I think my biggest, my biggest regret and resentment at sentencing was that people truly didn't understand, don't understand addiction. So let's get into that now, I feel okay. like. This is a good segue. So so I think for timeline purposes, you're at the peak of your career, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're obviously dabbling in your addictions, mm -hmm. right? More so than dabbling. <laughs> More so than it was a day, It was a daily <laughs> dabble. Daily dabble. <laughs> we can laugh about it now. Um, you know, what was... What was that point of like, you know, no return where it went from managing, let's call you a functioning addict, if you mm -hmm. will. Yes. Where it went from a functioning addict to, okay, I've just hit a turning point. I'm no longer a functioning addict. Mm -hmm. Can we walk through that one? I mean, moment? every, or please. What? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, stop me if I'm speaking too much, but clearly um, it was a real heavy active addiction for a period of six years called 2010 to 16, 2009 to 16. 2010, every day in 2010 through 16, I can honestly say um, I was scared. Uh, I was I was scared for my life. I didn't not necessarily did I want to commit suicide, but I've thought about it. Um, can we be specific about the addictions too? I think sure. Gambling. Fine. So gambling is the main addiction. Gambling was the main addiction. I yeah. literally would call up my bookie and bet on sports every day. Mm. Not there was not one day that went by where I didn't gamble. And a three hundred dollar bet became a thousand dollar bet, became a five thousand dollar bet, became a fifty thousand dollar weekend on the NFL. And while I was making good money, really good money, all relative, um, 
it got so bad that the, I, I, the hope was that I would win big one day and be able to pay my client back. And then it became clients back because I was just a terrible gambler. I kept losing and losing. And the idea was, you know, how long can I conceal this? The, the hope was until the clients got paid back, right? Mm. And then I realized it got so bad that there was just no way I could ever win that kind of money and pay my clients back. And I would say at the end of 2015, um, in sometime in early 2015, gambling became cocaine. And cocaine. What do you mean by that? Meaning I, I, I added on to my addictive personality by incorporating cocaine into my daily usage. Mm. And marijuana was always a part of my life, even in high school, but I never thought of it as a real addiction, but it is. I've learned that it is. But gambling was the number one disease, but my life, I, I think, I have a heart condition. Mm. In 2010, I, I had a stamp in my heart. So who, who am I to not only, who am I to... That's, that's literally risking your life. That and, and subconsciously, yeah, yeah, I've yeah, learned yeah. that I was really trying to kill myself because there were nights where I'd sweat all night and wake up in, in sheets that are soaked and I was probably just, I couldn't take it anymore. The pressures were mounting, um, the fear of being caught, the, the way my children, excuse me, said. You know, the way my children would see me, those that, those clients and how they would, you know, view me. Um, it's not how I want to be remembered, let's just say that. But it became so bad that um, I kind of wanted to get caught. So what I did was a, I just started doing a shitty job on one client in particular. Well, Lannis. It's public. Lannis Morissette. Yeah, Lannis Morissette. I started doing a shitty job on her in hopes that she would fire me. And eventually she did. And the irony is she went to that cousin's firm that I referenced. Earlier, who brought you who up brought in me, the business. Brought me up in the business. And then um, she went to his firm and his partner... Um, who's not a very nice person, but I'm not here to talk poorly about anyone, um, discovered the monies, and that's the whole irony of my story. It's full circle, and needless to say, my cousin and I don't talk. Uh, not because I don't, res uh, not because I'm disappointed, because you know he did what he needed to do, and I respect what he did. Mm -hmm. It's just another person who doesn't understand the disease, and. Um, but again, I hold myself accountable for that. And yeah, it just became awful. And thankfully, when I was finally caught, it was, like I said earlier, one of the best days of my life in a crazy, weird way, in the sense that the world just came of pressure came off my shoulders. And I, for the first time, I had this amazing mental clarity, like I'm not afraid anymore. Mm. I'm sure I'm sad, sure I'm embarrassed, sure I feel guilty. You know, sure, I've disappointed, most importantly, my children and, and, and the clients. Um, and I'll be living the rest of my life, as I said before, publicly, um, you know, trying to make amends um, to those that will allow me to. Because I still have a lot of resentment, a lot of guilt, a lot of ego. And despite my hard work and efforts to date, there's a lot more work I need to do. Um, and I think that's what prison will afford me, the opportunity to work on myself. And to also show my kids that, you know, dad, like other people in this world, can, 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 who have addictions, who have childhood trauma, who have life challenges, how do they overcome these mistakes and better themselves? I want to be remembered as a person who not kept my head down, not played the self-pity victim role, because that would have been super easy, but rather accepted responsibility for his addictions and his actions 
and became a better person. And that's only going to be um, proven by my actions, not by what I say. Because the truth is, nobody can believe what I say anymore. I was a, I was a man, master manipulator, a liar, a stealer, a person who stole and cheated. I understand that. And I also understand that a big part of that was all the reasons I just said earlier. Not an excuse, but an explanation that people don't understand. But I don't really care what people understand or don't understand. I don't live my life for the way people judge me. I live my life because I know that um, I want to prove to myself and to my children that I can learn from my mistakes and that I can become a better person and most importantly, be of service. And you know, there's a great book I'm reading by Sheryl Sandberg, Option B. And one of the quotes that she, she has in the book, not by her, but she credits someone else is, if you have a why to live, then you can bear the how. And my why is yeah. myself, That's my awful. three beautiful boys, and my, f- my fiance right now, my mother who's dying from stage four lung mm-hmm. cancer. I want to be there for her. Yeah. I hope she survives my imprisonment and I can come out and really, she's, these are the un- people in my life who have given me unconditional love. And um, those, are, that, those are my whys. And I can bear the hows, okay? Mm-hmm. I've done harm. It's time for me to do the right thing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm dedicated to being there for people. When I come out, I want to lecture. I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. I want um, I want to write a memoir um, about my life struggles, mm-hmm. and and I want people to use it much like I'm using Sheryl Sandberg's book as a tool to rise above, to show resiliency, and to not keep your head down like so many people in this rehab who keep their head down because they're at a rehab center and they want to play the self pity. Keep your head up. There's a lot of whys. Mm-hmm. Keep your head up, and I want to. I, I feel like that's my calling. Um, but before I can do that, I need to work on myself and I need to improve myself. And that's, that's my goal, my number one goal while I'm away. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, you're turning your mess into a message that can benefit other people's lives. And so in a sense, it's like a full circle thing where you said you had this rough upbringing, but it, it drove you or something, you know, you used it to your advantage. I feel like you're using this now to you know, your advantage and advantage of others. So we commend you for that. Well, thank you for saying that. It means a lot to me. And I will say yeah. that there's no question in my mind that we talk about, com- I have the confidence and that, that it, this is my calling and that I will really help countless lives in this world when I come out. Yeah. And um, that I'm, I'm so motivated to help those people. I really, really, truly am. And, you know, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And this is no coincidence that I've come full circle in my life. Well, I feel like you had a lot of you had a lot of wounds. You said that you kind of didn't address, right, from from your upbringing. And sometimes when we don't look at those wounds, they can spill over in unhealthy ways, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a big therapy guy. Yes. Pro therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, what you don't know can kill you. Well, <laughs> well, here's the key to that. Yeah. I'm a big therapy guy. I've been in therapy most of my life. The problem is. Um, those childhood demons could never come out. Plus, when I was an active addict mm-hmm. and I, the therapy was more marriage counseling, mm-hmm. I never, I could never open up and share that I was an addict because. So I was lying to my therapist, lying to my ex. Um, everything I did in my life, I was shielding and hiding. Here's what I will say to that: that's most important to take away. Uh, hopefully, as a takeaway from your audience here today is, I encourage you to be vulnerable. I encourage you to not withhold. Um, I encourage you to not cry. I encourage you to cry, excuse me, because I cry every day. Mm-hmm. I'm vulnerable as I sit here today and, and had moments of tears throughout this podcast um, because I've learned that withholding got me nowhere. I was afraid 
to share and be vulnerable because I thought that was a sign of weakness. But you know what? Had I had the strength and the courage to be vulnerable before 2009, 2010, I wouldn't be sitting here and talking to you today. Someone, I I probably could have sought help a lot sooner and I didn't have to hit rock bottom to get the help I needed. And I'm so happy that in today's life, in society, we do now encourage vulnerability thanks to Brene Brown. It's growing. It's growing and we do, we do, you know, encourage people to share their feelings and to cry and to not judge those people as weak but strong. And I tell you what, when I hug my my, my 13-year-old, soon to be 14-year-old, and I give him a big kiss and he cries and I cry, it's just, you can't get a greater feeling and connection to someone. And one day I know my two older boys will talk to me and we'll be able to hug and cry, but again, I have to show them like that daddy has taken the right actions because they have a right to be disappointed in what I've done. Yeah. So. And actions speak louder than, than words. Especially from coming from someone <laughs> yeah. like me. <laughs> no, we're, addicts are very good with words, I feel like. Yeah, we're good at getting, <laughs> manipulating an outcome, but I don't yeah. want to manipulate no, anymore. No, no, no. I just want to be real. I see you there in your marriage counseling, like... With all this bottled up oh, shit. My God. There's so many, like, oh, yeah. oh, there's so many things I could tell you if we had uh, yeah. a year to just talk nonstop. <laughs> yeah. I would just say, wait for my book. <laughs> I'll put, a little, put, put it out there. Do you got a title for the book yet? Yeah, so far the title is called 19 Pairs of Prada. Oh. Now, why 19 Pairs of Prada? Because uh, at my sentencing, my ex-wife was sitting along with my middle son on the side of the government. Uh-huh. And um, she lied. Uh, she committed perjury throughout family court this year and also lied in criminal court. Um, that I bought 19 pairs of Prada. The idea was for her to show that I lived this um, outside of my means. And yes, I did live outside my means. But when you're making a million three and when you're scheduled to make over $2 million in 2016, you could afford 19 pairs of Prada. Yeah. But I never bought 19 <laughs> pairs of Prada. It was first going to be called Double Life. I like but that uh, 19 pairs of Prada just takes on a different meaning yeah. after hearing her lie in court. Like that title is more cathartic for you. Yeah, it's, it's point. well said. <laughs> By the way, as I continue to get more humble and I continue to get less and less resentment toward her and others yeah. that I've experienced throughout this year, perhaps that title will change 10 more times. But as I sit here today <laughs> and talk to you, it's gone from double life to 19 pairs of Prada. Nice. Um, okay, so there's a couple more things. One is um, I, I just find it interesting. And I think you'll really appreciate this. The entertainment business, you know, full of a lot of volatility. You know, your number one artist today could be off the charts in six months and never heard from again, correct? Correct. And uh, I just find that resembles gambling a little bit to me, you know? You could be hot at the casino and then just ice cold. And, you know, do you think that part of what drew you or kept you on the entertainment side is you were getting a little bit of a fix of that at all or, or, or not really? You know, no, no one will believe this answer, but I can tell you from one addict, you know, to another, um, I never got high from my clients. Um, I really thought we were all equal. And by the way, I never got high from gambling. I hated to gamble, but it was that sick, de- degenerate disease that, and the hope and the fantasy of trying to repay that kept me going. I never enjoyed gambling at all. I hated to gamble. In fact, I know really? if I ever, God forbid, relapse, yeah, it's not going to be on gambling. It's going to be on cocaine. Wow. I hated to gamble. I was just, it was like this, it was um, insidious, awful, progressive disease. Did you ever bet the Super Bowl? Oh, um, of course, the, right? You probably didn't talk about what color shoes the quarterbacks I mean, like. I bet every, I bet the quarters, the halves, the games, the overs, the Did unders, the, the teasers. I, did, I Maybe once, but not often. Because, you know, I thought I was smarter than that, but apparently I wasn't. 
<laughs> but yes, you're right. Listen, the entertainment business is... It, I am proud to, to leave the business and know that there are a lot of great young and established artists that are now treating the inter, their careers as a career and as a business. When I first started out, you saw a lot of the artists in that sex, drug, and rock and, war, rock and roll kind of mentality. I think today's artists are much more mature and treating it like a business as it should be. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of success with wonderful young artists today. I agree with that. Yeah, I feel like that's evolving for it's the evolving. better. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, you know, you're going you're you're going to prison in three weeks in two late, weeks two weeks so july 11th july, i surrender uh sheridan oregon um i'll give you my address if anyone here wants to ever mail me good bad and indifferent thoughts about this um i accept constructive criticism um Put that on the show notes as yeah, well. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm here to help I, I was considering doing a um, blog from prison sort of to kind of get my um message out there um a little bit more but the truth is i i I can't, like I said earlier, I can't help others until I, can, I help myself fully. And like I said, I still have so much more growth internally mm-hmm. with respect to my addictions and my, my childhood demons that if my goal really is to come out and help people, which as we sit here today and talk, that is my goal. Mm-hmm. The best way to accomplish that and the smartest way to accomplish that is to first help myself. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it's like the oxygen mask thing, you've heard, which I'm sure you know, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we got to put on the oxygen mask if we're in a plane. You know, first we do ourselves, then we do the people around mm-hmm. us. Um, is there something I think it'd be? You've been on this recovery path now for about a year, would you say? You have 412 days. Okay, so a little over a year. Yeah, a little over a year. Thank you so much. And and what have you found? I think it might be good for the audience because you never know who's listening. Yes. What have you found to be the most uh, helpful? you know, tool um, in that 400 some odd days to, to help you with the shit? Yeah. First of all, surround yourself with a great community. You know, in the, in the um, you know, world of addiction, we, we have a fellowship, we have a community. Super important to surround yourself with those, that community. Because it can feel very isolating. Yeah, you can feel isolated, community. but people in the community don't judge. In right. the fellowship, they don't judge, whether it's Gamblers Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, or any form of anonymous you know, in those rooms, you are a family. And I know that the word family is, is, is an overused word or phrase. Um, but in the rooms, we are a family as, as a fellowship. We are a community. And goes back to being vulnerable in those rooms, sharing. Because the people, the beautiful part about a 12-step program is the members in that room, they want to be of service and help that newcomer. Mm-hmm. So I felt a lot of genuine love when I walked in the rooms. And now I love helping people who walk in the rooms for the first time. But also another overused adage, which I apply to my life every day, is to live one day at a time. Mm. Because I can't go back, I can go back, and that's when I get in trouble, Mm -hmm. and live in my world of guilt and shame and resentment. How did I do all this stuff? I can't believe, Jonathan Schwartz, you did this. Mm. That'll just take me to a place of depression and further isolation. I can't future trip and say, oh my God, what am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to generate money for myself and my kids? Yes, I think the book's going to be a great platform. Yes, I think lecturing is going to be a great platform. And yes, I think the book's going to be turned into a movie bigger and better than Wolf of Wall Street. I could say all that, right? And I hope it does happen. But the reality is it may not. So I don't future trip. I live in the present. One of the greatest things, another quote from Sheryl Sandberg that I love that she said is when she was grieving. Now, all of us are grieving differently, right? She was grieving for because of the death of her husband. So she says, I really didn't. There are people who either choose to not talk to you because they're afraid they may say the wrong thing or people may say, how are you? 
or say the wrong thing. How are you? In Cheryl's case, she just lost her husband. Mm. Clearly, she's not doing well. How are you going to jail, Jonathan? Well, clearly, I'm not proud I'm going to jail. And so Cheryl said, and I, yeah. and I shared this at a GA meeting last week and an AA meeting as well last yeah. week, it, it's what would be nice to hear is how are you today? Mm. Because that goes back to living one day at a time. Today is a good day. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. I'm going to live in the present. And I'm not going to go back and reflect upon my mistakes in the past because I'm learning and growing from those. So how are you today is a question that I would encourage people to ask me. Because clearly I'm afraid I'm going to jail. Okay? I'm going to be honest. I want to talk about that. Of yeah. course so I'm there's afraid. there's anxiety. There's anxiety. Uh, what does jail yeah. look like? Yeah. You know, what, you know God, how are you going to occupy your time? And, and by the way, six years is a long time. Now six years will become less with good behavior and the residential drug program and all of that. I thought it was three. It's 37 months okay. if, what, if the following happens. One is I complete the RDAP program. That takes a year off your sentence. And then I get 11 months for good behavior if I can behave in prison. And that is managing my anger, which I haven't been good at to date. And then the third thing is if I can get six to 12, 12 months off for uh, to a halfway house or home confinement, mm-hmm. it can become 37 months. But you know what, that's, that's, I can control that by doing the right thing every day and, um, and not getting caught up in some of the things that people get caught up in prison. And um, you know, just doing what I'm, I have, my curriculum there. And I have a pretty lengthy curriculum, which yeah. is gonna be to wake up in the morning and walk and run and, and exercise and to pray. Um, my rabbi and I have built a curriculum so that I can learn a lot more about Judaism. And really incorporate it again without being a hypocrite into my life. I want to read newspapers, keep keep up on current events. I want to journal. I want to write my book. I have a lot of stuff that I want to do. I mean, and perhaps there's a course I can take in various things that interest me um, through the Bureau of Prison Education System. But that's a lot to keep myself occupied, and hopefully I can do that. And again, because um, I have a reason, I, I can. There's a, there's a why to live for, and I can bear it to the house. That's the house. That's how I'm going to live for the wise, by doing all those things and occupying my time. Because you and I know, as an addict, if we isolate, we can, our heads are not healthy. And I don't want to be in my head because I don't have a healthy head. No. So I have, to, I have to put myself in the right place, and that's by following God's will. I'm going to say what's interesting, uh, what you said a little earlier about how you come into rooms of you know, recovery, and you said it's about the people around you, right? And uh, even in entertainment business, you said, you know, it's the artist needs a team. Mm-hmm. So there's just an overarching point here to just living. Like, we, we need support. We can't do it alone. Yeah, it's, you, 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 know? really, you really closed the loop extremely well and yeah. you articulated it so much better than, than I could have. And yes, 100% agree with what you just said. Yeah. Thank you for saying it that Hi. way. Thank you. And I am 100% dedicated to... Um, accept God's invitation for a second chance and a second opportunity in life. Mm. And most importantly, I've got to do right by my three children. And I'm super driven, super dedicated to make my three beautiful, innocent boys um, understand that, A, Dad dad made a mistake, Mm. but we're proud of the work Dad has done to better himself. And um, just know that I'm here for you boys, and I love you very much, and I'm sorry for all that I've done. Tell us, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? I wish you would have known, I wish you were smart enough to understand that there is a support group out there and there are resources to go and ask for help. 
whether at that time it was just your childhood demons or a little bit of gambling addiction or other things in your life, I wish I would have known as an 18-year-old that, that um, had I asked for help, I likely would have received it. Mm. And uh, perhaps I would have crossed paths with, with you differently than the reasons why we're here today. So for anyone out there struggling, I really encourage you to please seek help. That is a sign of strength. We talked about the vulnerability in crying. There are so many organizations and associations and individuals that want to help you. In fact, in the program, as you and I both know, being of service not only helps the person who we're trying to help with through our service, but it also helps ourselves. So you're never, ever, ever, ever a burden on us because you're asking us for help. What is your favorite quote? The quote reads, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And that's my favorite quote. And that's one that um, I'll probably say every day because I need those words of encouragement mm. um, to help me each day and to live each day one day at a time. And I'm sure you'll have a lot of support, a lot of visitors. And I wouldn't say, you know what, I won't. I won't have a lot. The operative word is a lot. I will have support, but it'll be quality support. I don't need a lot of people in my life. I need quality people in my life. That's powerful. And, um, and right now, I'm blessed to have those quality people in my life. You made a statement when we first connected that was so, it was powerful. You said, if, you said if you would have passed away, something like this just ring a bell mm -hmm. in 2015. Yes. Can you say that again? That Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I was seeing an alternative Eastern Western medicine doctor, and then sometime in 2000, first quarter 2016, Maybe when shortly after this was became public, he asked me to attend a staged funeral. I said a staged funeral. He said, "Yeah, just come." So what happened was I went to this beautiful home where the staged funeral was taking place, and um, the person who was supposed to be deceased is upstairs watching on a video camera this incredible funeral of himself. So there was a, a rabbi. There was. You know, all his friends and family in black ties and gowns and tears and beautiful eulogies. And the eulogies, the funny part about the eulogy, for lack of a better description, is the people who were giving the eulogy, they didn't know whether to talk in past, present, or future tense, right? Yeah. But the message that I took, my takeaway from there was, had I passed away before this became known at the height of my career, okay, I'm just throwing out a number. Hypothetically, I would have had about 400 people at my funeral. Probably 80, 90% of those attendees would have been there out of what I'll call the phony Hollywood professional obligation. Today, if I were to pass away, I'm lucky to have 20 to 25 people. But you know what? Those 20 or 25 people would be all people that have shown me unconditional love and support. And I would be looking at them from underground and saying, thank you for your unconditional support and love. And it would have so much more meaning to me than to have people who really are not there for the right reasons. Thank you so much for no. sharing that. Thank, thank you, you so for, much for having oh, me. Oh, yeah, man. It was, it was great. We, we, we wish you the best. I'm sure you're going to be amazing and evolve beautifully. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I wish you um, the best of luck. The reason why I chose this podcast is because you're a member of the community. And because I understand your mission is beautiful, and I hope that people can understand that you as the founder of this are coming from a place of true authenticity, and uh, I will be rooting for you from within, and to the extent that I can get feedback on how successful you are, because you will be successful beyond where you are today. Thank you. Um, thank you for giving me this time. Thank you.